And uh, at that time, we had a very dear friend of Douglas Fairbanks and mine, a great writer who wrote My Lady's Dress, Milestones, Kismet. Edward Knobloch, who spoke beautiful French and just as perfect German. Of course, Ernst only had very few words in English. So I, I remember I met him out on the lot, and I said, welcome, Mr. Lubitsch. Welcome to California. Welcome to our studio. I'm very proud uh, that you came over. And, and I took his hand, and he shook it, and he was very naturally, being an artist, very sensitive, and he was deeply hurt. And he shook my hand and threw it away as though it were a hot potato. And he went away with Knobloch. He said, mein Gott, he said, she is cult. And Knobloch said, oh, no, she's not. He said, yeah, she's cult. How can she be an actress and be so cult? Because, of course, he was smiling under his teeth being taken out and naturally losing his shoes <laughs> and his trousers. Uh, then... A few days later, I saw him going through this wheat field, and it's now all built up, and where Douglas had built the uh, castle for Robin Hood. And he was swimming through it with all these wild gestures. And I said to my mother, there goes trouble. I got back to the bungalow. And Knobloch came in, and he said, Mary, I'm sorry to tell you, Lubitsch will have nothing to do with Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall. Well, it was a blow in the face. I had spent $250,000 on the story and preparation, and that would be over a million dollars today. And uh, I said, well, uh, that's too bad. So I said, will you ask him to come in and talk to me? And I said, I'd like to be alone with him. So he came in and he was white and his hands were perspiring when he shook hands with me. And I said, I hear you don't do Dorothy Vernon. And he said, nine, not for a million dollars. I said, all right, Mr. Lubitsch. I said, I, have, I wouldn't uh, go against your good judgment said, what's the matter? What's the matter with the story? He said, too many queens, he meant queens, not enough queens, I won't do it. What he meant was that the story of uh, Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth of England was so great a story in itself that there was no room for Dorothy Vernon. And that's what he meant, too many queens and not enough queens. Well, I said, I, I, as terribly disappointed as I am, I see your point of view. But uh, let's not uh, get excited about it. If you don't want it, I'm sorry. But let's try to find another story. So in the meantime, he'd been going around the wall with his hands crossed in back of him, and he was perspiring so that he left a festoon of little, he was a small man, you know, and had little fat hands, and they were wet, and he left a festoon of his hand marks around my freshly painted 
um, Dove Gray Wall, and I kept watching that, and I really believe I was more disturbed about those hand marks than I was about Dorothy being turned down. So he went out to Knobloch, who was waiting anxiously outside. He said, Mine God, now I know she's cold. He said, A necklace. He said, She took it. She took it standing up. She didn't say one word. And Knobloch said, Oh, no, she's disturbed. But he said, You don't know American actresses. He said, They don't, they save their acting for the stage and the screen. No, he said, No, she's cold. She can't act. He said, I'm telling you, she said, he, she can't act. He said, why don't you wait till you get her before the camera, and then you'll see. So weeks went by, weeks went by, and nothing would, well, he tried, for instance, to get me to do Faust, and I regret that I didn't do it. But my mother heard him from the other room saying, this, Miss Pickford, is the sense where you stringle the baby. He meant this is the scene where you strangle a baby. So when he left, my mother, who never interfered with me, the business was her department, mine was the artistic, of course I always consulted her. Uh, outside of being very strict with me about being perfectly moral and never doing anything salacious or suggestive, she never interfered. So she said, what did he say? Isn't Faust, isn't this child illegitimate? I said, yes, mother. And she said, he is suggesting that you strangle your illegitimate baby? Well, I said, mother, he's a European. She said, you're an American. You're a Canadian, you're an American, you're an English-speaking woman. I absolutely forbid you doing that picture. And I've never said that to you before, and I hope I'll never have to do it again. I said, all right, Mother, I, I won't do it. Well, of course, Lubitsch hit the ceiling. When I didn't give him the reason for it, I just said I didn't want to do it. Well, finally, I should remember, it's a classic, the story that Rosita is uh, uh, based on. No, it's... Uh, no, it's a very famous, uh, it's a classic. But uh, what uh, Lubitsch tried to do was to reform. You see, he had, uh, well, again, being a European, uh, he liked to do naughty and suggestive things. He tried to be as moral as he knew how, and I tried to be slightly naughty. And I've always felt that the result was pretty terrible. <laughs> I hope I'm wrong. I think that the costuming, I think the decor, I think the sets are magnificent, and so was the photography. I didn't like myself as Rosita. I couldn't accept it. And then Lubitsch and I, uh, while I tried to give him full reign, I said I've never interfered with a man's prerogative. I don't think that a woman should do that. Of course, being a producer, I could and had to in my dressing room or in the office. Say there has to be one supreme head, and when it comes to an issue, I am that head. So he got so excited, he said, Nobloch, was is this? So he explained to him in German. 
He said nine, not for a million dollars. Not for one million dollars. I had walked out after I said it. I said, Mr. Lubitsch, I will never interfere with you on the set. I will never gainsay you. I'll never criticize anything you have to say or do. But if it comes to an issue, after all, it is I have to put the money up, and it's my career. And I, I will be glad to arbitrate it. I'll be glad to bring in a person that you and I both respect. But you are not the court of, of last appeal. And I must say this before we start. I have gone along with you. I have spent 250000 on Dorothy Byrne. I've shelved it. This is the story you want to do. So when I left the office, he tore every button, and I mean every button, off his clothing. And that was before zippers, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and I mean that. Not alone that, but he pounced on Edward Knobloch's papers, some of which he had no copies, and tore them into a hundred pieces, threw them in the air, danced around, and said he was going back to Germany. But Knobloch, who was a very persuasive individual, said that I was within reason. He knew me well that I would not uh, be unreasonable and that he was being very foolish. With the result that we went ahead and made the picture, but it wasn't easy for me. There was one scene with Holbrook Blinn where he's the king and he's supposed to say, Rosita, where is the dagger? So Lubitsch, being an actor himself, which I think is a great mistake for a director ever to be an actor, because they visualize themselves in all the male roles and they're no good for the female roles. So he came up to me. No, he said to Holbrook Blitt, he said, now, he said, I want that you should say to her, Rosita, where is the danger? There is the danger amid the jewels. Where is the dagger with the jewels? So Holbrook Blinn, that had a fiendish sense of humor, looked at me with a perfectly straight face and said, Rosita, there is the danger amid the jewels. With, of course, the result that I started to laugh in a dramatic, terribly dramatic scene. Lubitsch said, stop to the camera. Why is it to laugh, please, Miss Pickford? Well, I said, I don't know, I feel silly this morning, Mr. Lubitsch. Please, be serious. Come, now. You say, where is the danger? Meet the yours. Please, come. We took the scene about ten times until I said, please, please, Holbrook, don't do that to me anymore. He's getting very angry. He'll throw the camera at me next. We finally got the scene uh, without the, the danger, meet the yours. But this went on all through the picture, and... Well, I don't know. I think it was my fault and not Lubitsch's. And so I am turning it over with great reluctance to Eastman House. And when you see it, be tolerant with me. And know that I was trying to be as naughty as I knew how. And he was trying to be good. And, uh, well, we just didn't seem to get together, but... I was very proud of the fact that I was able to bring him to this country. There was no bad 
effects. I mean, no one criticized him nor me. And I'm glad that that poor general, who was sick in the head, I think, somebody must have, uh, in the vernacular of the poets, must have conked him. And if they didn't, they should have. So that's so much for Rosita. Miss Pickford, wasn't there talk of some project around this time of Charlie directing you and uh, Mademoiselle de Montpin? Didn't he yeah. himself want to direct you in a, a mature part? Do you recall anything about that? No, you're asking about Charlie Chaplin. Yes. No. Oh, back in 1916, his brother Sid came to New York, just about the time I was doing Poor Little Rich Girl. And Charlie uh, had an idea called Bread, B-R-E-A-D. And he wanted to work, he wanted to co-star with me. And uh, believe it or not, I was highly insulted. I thought that pie-throwing individual because he wasn't considered the great artist that he became later. He offered me the same salary I was getting, 10000 a week for four weeks. But I thought, what in the world would I be doing with a man of his caliber? And I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm not a comedian. I tell your brother that I thank him, and I, I don't think I could be relieved of my contract anyhow. But that is the only time that... Uh, was any talk of Charlie uh, di directing me. Well, then you went ahead and finally did make Dorothy Vernon, didn't you? Yes, I made it with Mickey Nealon. And it was a very... Uh, I liked doing it, because, of course, I love England. And I happen to know Lady Diana Manners, who was the direct descendant of Dorothy Vernon. Mm-hmm. You see, John Manners. Mm-hmm. See, Dorothy married, uh, Dorothy Vernon married John Manners. And Lady Diana Manners was the, uh, I don't know how many generations. And I went to Haddon Hall. And I can't tell you what a thrill it was after having uh, reproduced it on, on the uh, lot. And then came the Lenny Rooney. Well, that was an amusing story. Uh, already people were grumbling and not liking what I had done. I, they didn't like Rosita. They didn't like um, too much Dorothy Vernon. It was a disappointment. It was a very expensive picture. And so I thought, well, I have to go back to the little girl whether I like it or not. So I remember walking around the sets. And if you've ever been around sets, you know what a lonesome, sort of a haunted place it is. New York Street. Uh, the Bowery, you know, Fifth Avenue, uh, small town churches, and deserted, nobody there. And I thought, well, what in the world am I going to do? And the inner voice said, well, you're part Irish, aren't you? I said, that I am. said, well, who do you know that's Irish? I said, I know Mabel Norman said, all right now, you're the producer of Mar Mabel Norman's next picture. What would you do about it? I said, well, I'd certainly get something Irish. Like what, for instance? Well, I'd get a very Irish title like, oh, 
little Annie Rooney. I said to myself, that's it, little Annie Rooney. We wrote the story, maybe it shows today, one week out here on the lawn, and one more week, because we were pressed for time, in order to get a, a good release at the proper time of the year. And there were about six or eight of us. Sat around, we had sandwiches sent out. We'd start at nine, work till five or six. And th and little Annie Rooney was the result. Who was in the group that picked that really picked the And uh, Tim Whalen, who's now passed on, turned out to be a very good director, and a man by the name of O'Neill. They were gang, uh, gag men, you know? And there was another man whose name I don't recall. There were three gag men, uh, Hope Light Loring and Louis Lighton. And uh, the d director was um, Bill, was it? B yeah, Bill Bodine. Then uh, Bill Bodine and you worked on another film that came immediately afterwards called Sparrows, and that's one of my great favorites. That was my story, too. Oh, what? Did you originally call it Human Sparrows, or was that a... Well, that was, they called it that in England, I think, Human Sparrows. I always worried about you in the scene where you were crossing over the swamp on well, the limb, which was sinking. Well, do you know that I did it three, uh, six times? No. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, there were about, uh, I'd say, in all, about a dozen alligators. And you know the most vicious ones are the young ones, around 60 to 75 to 85 years of age. The older ones are sort of sluggish, but the young ones can kill you with their tail if they don't bite you, you know, they can, oh. And I said I wouldn't go over it unless I could do it. It was a plank, about oh so wide, would you say five inch, six, about six inches. And uh, a rough plank, I had to go over in my bare knees and carry this I weighed at the time 100 pounds, and the baby weighed 33 pounds, so she was half my, a third of my weight. So I said I'd go over with a doll, see if I could hold on. And it was torture with bare feet and bare knees, and the weight, of course the doll wasn't as heavy as the baby, and she had no fear of the alligators. My name was Ma M Mama Mo Molly, if you remember. And she'd point at them as though they were kittens, and she'd say, ah, okay, mama, my, okay. And she put her full weight on me. And, oh, I'd be so tired at night, my back, she was strapped on my back, you know. So Douglas Fairbanks heard about it. And he was a very gentle, charming person. But he came down there like a wild, wounded bull. He was so angry with everybody on the set for allowing me to do this. Why, well, he said, don't you know you can do that in double exposure? Do it without the alligators underneath and, and put the alligators in after with a double exposure, which happened. But I actually went over those 12 alligators six times. And that's the truth. That was the real thing. That was the real thing. Then after this came uh, My Best Girl, and I think around that time you must have met Buddy Ranch. Yes, I did. That was a grown-up story, and that also I collaborated on. Because it was very difficult for me to find stories. In fact, it still is. Uh, it amuses me that all the years ago, 
people were always complaining they couldn't find material. And you know that one of the either Kresses or Krenskys married a girl in the five and ten cent store right after we made the picture. And then the song came out, you know, I married a billion dollar baby in the five and ten cent store. Well, Buddy was and still is a country boy. And he had just come from, he was with Paramount. He had already done Wings and one or two other pictures. He was in college when some friend of his father's in Olathe, Kansas, suggested Buddy to Paramount for their school. They had about a dozen young people, pardon me. And they asked him if he would take a test. Well, he didn't want to do it because he was afraid that the boys in his fraternity house would make fun of him. He's a Faisai. He's going to KU. And he won the scholarship. And he went back to New York and, uh, and uh, went through the paces. I don't know what all they taught him. And Hope uh, Loring, the one that helped be on, she also helped on My Best Girl, she and her husband said, uh, I saw a young man last night. I think it was at the Mayfair Club. And she said, I've taken the liberty of asking him to come out and see you. Well, at the time, I was undecided between Buddy and a, and a man called Donald Cook. So the two of them made the test. And the, the consensus of opinion was that Buddy should play the role. And then I knew him off and on for 10 years before we were married. I met his family, of course, knew Mrs. Rogers, Judge Rogers, who was a probate judge of Olathe, Kansas, and just the nicest American family that anybody could meet. I think just before perhaps making My Best Girl, or perhaps at the same time while you were working on it, you did a little bit in a Fairbank picture called The Gow Show. Didn't you play the Madonna? That was a very sweet compliment, I thought. I, uh, it was a very tiring thing. I stood on this pedestal, it was my own idea. It was in color, you know, and I wanted blue and white. And they just got material. And uh, the wardrobe mistress pinned it on me. And I couldn't sit down. And you know, I stood on that pedestal until my feet and legs were so numb I didn't know that that could happen to you. But they had to pick me down. They had to pick me up and 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 and, and uh, put me uh, on the floor and unpin me, and I couldn't move. But I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful compliment. Yes, it's a very lovely sequence. And that reminds me to ask you if uh, you were in the habit of playing bits in each other's pictures in those days. No, I just played a bit for. Uh, let's see who was it wasn't Mary Astor. Uh, it might have been. Who played in, uh, was it the Gaucho? No, yeah. the Black Pirate. Well, that was Billy Duff. Billy Duff, yeah. that's right. Well, she went away, and I put a black wig on and turned my back, and the last scene in the picture, Douglas threw his arms around me and kissed me. And that's you. Uh, that was I. <laughs> and not Billy. No. And then Douglas uh, pinch-headed for my brother-in-law, 
Alan Forrest, who married my sister Lottie, and uh, she too, you know, was in uh, Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall. And he, uh, we wanted a big, muscular, uh, athletic back. And my ex-brother-in-law didn't happen to possess that, among other uh, gifts. He was a very handsome man. And so Douglas sat in for him. <laughs> fair about it, fair play. That's right. Then now we come to Coquette, and for Coquette, I believe you received an Academy Award, and this is still a most impressive performance, believe me. This was screened quite recently at the Dryden Theater, three times, I believe, in one weekend. Could you tell us a little about uh, uh, tackling the problems of working with sound? Well, naturally, I think my voice is too young for my age, and it was then. Of course, I can change it if I... If I'm conscious, if I, now that I'm thinking, I'm not thinking of my voice. But if I were trained to do it, of course, being in the theater, and strangely enough, when I project my voice, it takes on greater volume. That's from my training in the theater. I don't speak in my throat, but I was frightened to death. And when they took, of course, they it was on records first, you know, and the playback, I went over to Paramount to make this test, and I turned to someone, I said, I don't sound like that. Well, I said, that sounds like a pipsqueak's voice. <laughs> I said, that is terrible. And I said, do I sound like that? And they said, yes, but I said, it's impossible. It sounds like 12 or 13. And uh, they said, oh no, it's, it's quite good. Oh, I said, it's horrible. Right then and there, I decided I wasn't going to do Coquette, but they talked me out of it. And, uh, of course, I had seen that great performance of Helen Hayes in New York. She's a superb actress, and her diction is just wonderful. And, of course, I couldn't help but compare my, my voice with hers. Uh, then I went ahead, of course, you, I think, knowing my career as well as you do, that I'd cut my hair off. I wanted to be free of, of the shackles of uh, curls and playing little girls. And I thought that was one step toward it. Of course, I had the m most indignant letters, insulting <laughs> letters. And I thought, well, if that's all, uh, that after all uh, these years and a lifetime in the theater and motion pictures, if it's a bunch of 18 curls, that's keeping me on the screen is about time I retired. And uh, another thing that happened then that nearly broke my heart was to say goodbye to Rocher, Charlie Rocher. You know that he wouldn't, if there was a shadow on my face, it wouldn't matter if I were there with the King of England or the Queen of England. He'd stop grinding the camera. His devotion to me was so great that he wanted me to be perfect at every moment. And you know, when it came time to say goodbye to him, I didn't have the courage, the backbone, to face him. I left him a letter. And in this letter, if I recall correctly, I said, I'm determined to give a performance in this. It's a terrifically dramatic role. I'll have to cry a lot. I expect my nose to be red and swollen, my eyes swollen. 
I said, tragedy is an ugly picture. It's an ugly mask, because you know the mask of tragedy is not attractive. And even the most beautiful songster, when he's, when he's quarreling, when he's frightened, makes unattractive sounds. I said, I intend, I don't care how I look, I want, I'm going after the Oscar, and I want to give a performance for a change, and I don't want to look like something on a candy box or, in, uh, or a valentine. And I cannot do it unless I'm allowed full liberty. Well, I went out shopping with my mother and went back to the bongo, and Charlie was pacing the floor. And, oh, he was so upset. And he said he never expected anything like that from me. And it seemed as though I didn't appreciate all of the devotion and the great contribution he'd made to my career. But I knew that he would interfere. He'd stop the camera at the wrong moment. He had done it uh, before. And you know, when you get to a certain pitch, you may take a scene 10 times, 20 times. There'll be one take that'll be perfect. And if somebody stops you then, it's gone. Like the time that Valentino walked down the stage when I was doing uh, uh, Little Annie Rooney. The scene where I think my father's come home and it's a fellow officer to tell me my father's dead. I never did get that scene right. I could have killed myself. I couldn't rise to it because I was a 12-year-old girl until he walked down. Valentino and his friend from South America. I was glad to see him, but I tried to get back into that scene. I couldn't do it. I was Mary, I was not Annie. I walked up and down outside in agony, and the whole studio waited for me. I must have kept them waiting an hour, an hour and a half. I never got back into the mood. I tried to do it, but I was Annie when he came in, and that's what I felt about Charlie because uh, once or twice he'd stop grinding and I said, what's the matter, Charlie? He said, there's an unattractive shadow across your nose. Well, I didn't weaken. I went right ahead with it. And uh, we still remain friends. I love him. I respect him. I admire him. And I think he returns all of that. I'm sure he does. He speaks very, very now we come to the Taming of the Shrew, and I don't think you were too happy with that one, were you? No, I, I wasn't happy with it. In the first place, Shakespeare requires a great deal of, of study. It takes tremendous control of breath. And Shakespeare should be thought. All great Shakespearean actors think it. And as they, the, the more they think it, uh, the better their diction, the better they are able to project what to the modern world is almost a foreign language. But my performance was a spitting kitten. <laughs> uh, it was. It was a little kitten that's so... Psh, psh, psh. You know, I wake up in the night, <laughs> and the encounter with Petruchio when he says... Good morrow, Kate. And I said, Kate, Kate, they call me Catherine who do speak of me. Now, I'm, I'm not doing myself justice. But if I had it to say today, I'd say, Kate. Mm. 
they call me Catherine. Who do speak of me? Maybe that, that isn't good enough either. But you know, the bellows, it's the stomach. Everything comes from the stomach. Laughter, tears, hatred, everything comes from there. And deep down, this tigress, she could blast him. And when she gets into a temper, she should be very quiet. You come near me and I'll scratch your face with But I had none of that. I was breathing from the chest up and not from the stomach. I photographed fairly well, yes. On the other hand, I think Douglas gave a magnificent performance. Because he studied Shakespeare from the time he was seven. And it takes a flair. It takes gestures. It has to be broad. You have to fill the whole stage of the screen. And that comes from practice. And I wasn't fair to myself when I took Catherine on. I thought I'd be torn to pieces in London, but I wasn't. I deserved to be. Oh, I think so. Well, you know, I've not allowed it to be, although it's a talking picture, I haven't allowed it to be uh, shown on TV. Because I don't think it's fair to myself. I'm not going to ask the Mary of today, or the Mary of yesteryear, rather, to compete with the actresses of today. That isn't fair to, to, to her. And you know, I look upon her as my daughter. She worked hard that I might retire and live in security. And I have to protect her memory now. Do we mention Kiki and Secrets or don't we? Well, Kiki, I love doing, but they were outraged at me for going around in my step-in, <laughs> which, as I assure you, was quite uh, respectable. Uh, a bikini, I could understand, but it was triple line with chiffon. I was thoroughly underdressed, but, of course, she uh, did stay in a man's apartment on the sofa overnight, and that was shocking to the admirers of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and a poor little rich girl. Uh, you didn't like it either? No, I'm just saying I'm one of the admirers, but I'm not shocked at Kiki. <laughs> well, I'm sure Kiki would be as tame as Pollyanna today. Uh, it was, uh, perhaps it was a little light, I don't know. I haven't seen it in years. I would like to see it again. Unfortunately for secrets, it opened on the bank holiday in 1933. It opened in 25 cities on the very day the bank, the bank holiday was declared. I think there are moments in, in secrets that I'm quite proud of. I think the baby's death, for instance. There was one bad thing about secrets. The transition from the middle-aged woman to the elderly woman was badly done. That's the greatest fault, one of the greatest faults in it. The montage of them going west is one of the finest I've ever seen that I had nothing to do with. A man by the name of Hoffman did it. And I think it, uh, it is one of the most beautiful pieces of uh, craftsmanship I've ever seen, of these covered wagons and the rain and the sandstorms and the hardships of these people, one on top of the other, showing how the west was won. 
And uh, I, I don't think that Leslie Howard was a happy choice, but we couldn't help it. He, you could not imagine him conquering the desert. It should have been a gable type, you know? But unfortunately, you, you just have to take uh, what uh, is available at the time. And while he's, uh, was to my way of thinking, one of the supreme artists ever to, to uh, appear on the screen, he was miscast. That was another fault of the picture. There goes the phone. Will you excuse me a second?
something just room? Well, I'm glad to hear we have nine hours because I'm sure I have, <laughs> on the biograph alone, I have nine hours. <laughs> and I haven't forgotten that I promised you uh, the full autobiography, that is 159,000 words. Do you think you can hold out that long? Sure. You can. <laughs> well, uh, it was quite a task to cut 59,000 words out of it. <laughs>